the Spot Track Podcast, talking sports contracts, the salary cap, and business of sports. Today's edition of the Spot Track Podcast is presented by The Athletic. For sports fans, there's no better place for breaking news, powerful stories, and real time commentary than The Athletic. Donald, the up. Personalize it with your favorite teams and leagues. Get ad free exclusive contract at your fingertips. Visit theathletic.com slash spotrack, S P O T R A C, for 40% off your first year subscription. Happy Wednesday. My name is Mike Giannetti. A little baseball off the top here quickly, certainly with the news with David Ortiz and the Hall of Fame induction process as a whole. Back end of the show, as promised, it's the Patriots off-season deep dive. Matthew Fairburn from The Athletic, who covers the Patriots, previously covering the Buffalo Bills. So really good resource in terms of how that division is shaking out over the next couple of seasons, what the Patriots need to do to remain in contention in the AFC as a whole. So that's the back end of the show. But first, David Ortiz is the lone election to the Baseball Hall of Fame the first in two years. It's a process that is convoluted, complicated, I don't know if it's completely broken. I don't think I don't think it's completely broken. That's not my uh, my opinion at this time because I do like the fact that there isn't a requirement to put a player in every single year. I don't think players that are close to good enough should be good enough. And the the museum that is the Hall of Fame certainly makes it complicated to get there, makes it difficult to get there, but there is no formulaic criteria. Let's put that out there, okay? With that said, I want to start with Ortiz, formerly David Arias, as I just learned seven seconds ago, by the way, changed his name to Ortiz during the Major League Baseball process, was internationally signed by the Seattle Mariners back in 1992 for a $3,500 signing bonus, then was traded to Minnesota four years later for a, a player who played high school baseball a mile and a half from where I'm sitting right now in Orchard Park, New York. So... Dave Hollins for David Ortiz, straight up. That's how he became a twin. Stayed there for the better part of five seasons. Was a good player. I mean, the stats kind of bear it out. He was a good player with the twins. And he was in between Doug Mankiewicz and Torrey Hunter in the lineup for the most part. Solid hitters. That's a good 3-4-5 right there. You know, he was a doubles guy. It was a big ballpark. He was a 40 doubles, you know, 50 to... 60 RBIs in his healthy years. The home runs just weren't coming. You know, they were gradually coming. He had 10 in 2000, 18 in 2001, 20 in 2002. And then he flipped over to the Boston Red Sox in 2003. And that's when things really started to take off. And that increase was coming. You could, you can, you can just read his stats down the line and you can understand the process. And by the way, we've had plenty of players 20 years ago, 10 years ago, last year, that either they get a different hitting coach, they get some kind of instruction, they're going to some of these you know, specific academies, they're watching other players, they're talking to other players, you know, obviously analytics with launch angle and things like that, spin rates are all around, you know, all encompassing these players at this point in time. There's, this is just where the game was going, you know, and certainly the Bonses and those guys figured it out a long, long time ago, players who were already five-tool hitters were figuring this out a long, long time ago. And the first thing I did when I really wanted to sit down and talk Ortiz today was look at the lineups. That's why I could rattle off that Twins batting order for you right there. Because when he went to the, to the Red Sox in 2003, I wanted to know if there was a markedly better situation for him from a hitting standpoint. And I can't tell you that, you know, two, six, seven, you know, the majority of that lineup was any better on paper than what the twins had to offer at the time. You know, it was pretty even keel in terms of what the power and the production were going to be, except for one name. <laughs> and I rave about this guy. Every baseball, you know, aficionado should be raving about this guy. Good and bad. But Manny Ramirez was sitting right in front of him in that batting order the second he walked into town. And you can say, sure. There were years that Torrey Hunter had monster years that, that could have rivaled a Manny year. Yes and no. Yes and no. Manny Ramirez, for a lot of people, and a lot of people that I follow in this game, maybe the smartest, most intelligent, pure hitter in the, in the history of this game. Um, 
just, you know, find some interviews with him discussing his batting approach. And it's must, it's a must watch for you. You're going to get completely hooked. First of all, he's charismatic. He's easy to listen to. And, and, and he was a nerd with this stuff to the point of being maniacal with it. Right. And I think I've said this before, but it's worth saying right now because it's relevant to David Ortiz's career and where he eventually got to as a member of that Red Sox. But Manny Ramirez was so damn ahead of it that he would completely poach his first at bat, maybe even his first two at bats back in the days when starting pitchers would go eight innings on a regular basis. And he knew he was going to see that guy three times. And the point of it was, I'm not showing you my best swing. The same reason that, you know, starting pitchers don't bring the curveball out until the fourth inning sometimes. The same mindset. Manny had it at the plate. And Manny would say, I'm not going to show you my best swing. I'm going to make you think I'm not looking outside. I'm going to make you think I look terrible on that curveball or on that slider down and in in my first at bat because I'm setting you up now and I'm setting the catcher behind me up because now I know exactly what you're thinking because I've given you exact, I've given you the thought, right? I look bad on that slider down and in. That's what you're going to be thinking the next time I come to the plate. That's what the pitching coach is going to be saying to you as you're walking out of the dugout in the fourth inning and I'm, and I'm up, I'm up second and I'm going to crush it and I'm going to crush it. And when you've got that kind of batter sitting in front of you, who is not just physically gifted, but mentally can screw with the other team's pitching staff. When you're batting behind him, <laughs> you're going to get the sigh of relief, fastball down the middle, up, uh, you know, fastball up, a little bit extra juice. You're going to be getting some groove pitches because you're not Manny Ramirez. Okay. And the fact that either they got through him or he put one out or doubled to the gap, which he did hundreds of times in his career. Okay. You are going to be the benefit of the difficult at bat that Manny Ramirez is in front of you. All right. It's crazy and it's, it's out there, but I've heard enough stories and I've heard enough from him specifically, Manny, to think that David Ortiz's got job got a hell of a lot easier between 2002 and 2003 when he became a member of the Red Sox. And this, and the statistics bear themselves out. Did he get involved in steroids? Probably. Probably. Okay. He certainly didn't fail any tests after the fact, right? After the line was drawn in Major League Baseball sand. So I'm not going to even touch the majority of his Boston career thereafter. But did he help himself physically? Possibly. Him, him in 87% of the league. Let's be perfectly frank about what was happening in the 90s and the 2000s. But that Boston team was special. Manny Ramirez was special. And David Ortiz was already on an upward trajectory from a statistical standpoint, from a batting standpoint. By the way, that's where all he did. He very rarely played the field. So this is all we have to talk about is his approach to the plate and his production at the plate. Already trajectory upward. Took a huge step in 2003, continued to rise until 2006 in terms of home runs and RBIs. Peaked in 2005 6. Those two years combined 101 home runs, 285 RBIs over those two seasons. Insane. Just insane. But here's the crazy thing he played another 11 seasons after that peak, a total of 20 years. That's a huge push towards the Hall of Fame, longevity. To me, it's one of the big ones, especially if it's a massive chunk with one team, which is what we have here, 2003 to 2016 with Boston. If you're successful and the team is successful for that amount of time, it's going to be a huge resume boost when we, talk, when we get to these kind of votes. So already in his favor, certainly the World Series, massive, massively in his favor. Uh, you know, top five MVP vote for five straight seasons there in, in across that early chunk. But take us all the way down to 2000, 2016, his final season. All right. By the way, ridiculously healthy because he wasn't playing the field. So he was able to do his job, 600 plus plate appearances. He took 626 plate appearances in 2016 at age 40. He had 170 hits. He led the league in doubles with 48. 
He led the league in RBIs with 127. He led the league in slugging with 620. And he led the league in OPS in 2016, which was might have been the most important stat in the league, with 1.021. And oh, by the way, he had the most intentional walks. He was still intentionally walked 15 times at age 40. That's a Hall of Famer. What else do you want there? What else do you want? That's a Hall of Famer. He was an all-star in his final year. He was an all-star at age 34, 35, 36, 37, and 40 to finish off his career. Just hitting. No defense. That's how good he was. That's how good he was at hitting. All right? And it started in 2000, 2001. The trajectory was already there. 63 RBIs as a 24-year-old in the year 2000 with Minnesota. It was already right there for you. So you could talk steroids, and you could talk yourself out of that pretty quickly, in my opinion, because all these stats are real. And you can say that he should be devalued because he didn't play the field. I I tend to agree with that to some degree. But he did enough as a one-trick pony. He did enough. And he won, and his team won, and he was the best at what he did more than once in his career. Okay. If you go to baseball reference, there's bold all over his career, which represents he led the league in a certain metric. He did enough. And oh, by the way, and I know that a lot of people are really putting this out there this today in terms of Bonds and Clemens and certainly A-Rod, but he was charismatic as hell. He was the life of baseball when the Boston Red Sox were at the top of the sport. He was, and still is, in terms of his analysis with, I believe, TBS or Fox, one of the two, you know, he, he's a party. He's an intelligent guy, clearly. I mean, that's why we're, we're having this conversation. His baseball intelligence is what carried the day. It's why he was able to do what he was able to do. Because at 40 years old, he's not as freakishly strong as you could say he would have been at 28 with that 2004 championship. You know, it had to come with mentality. And now he and his ability to take that and speak his voice, either in an analysis or just telling stories. He's gifted with that. And he's allows himself to go out there and be out there and be, and be humble with it and be fun with it. He was better for the sport as a player and as a human being. And that shouldn't matter. It shouldn't. This is a baseball hall of fame. This is not a baseball characters hall of fame. But certainly seems like the opposite is true. If you don't have that kind of personality, you are certainly not rewarded. So I have a problem with that. I'm going to leave that for a different conversation. I think we'll bring Cousin Dan, maybe even Paul Hembo from ESPN, who I know has a lot of thoughts on this stuff too, and does follow the numbers and probably has a similar argument that I just laid out, which is put everything else away put the steroid stuff away, put everything else away. There's no flipping way that you don't look at this resume and say, yep, he's in. Now, first ballot, you can argue that all day. Maybe I, maybe I say you skip a year with him. Maybe, maybe, but there's no need to, especially if nobody else is worthy of it this year. And uh, good for him. In terms of the finances, I mentioned crazy small signing bonus to come in in 1992. Uh, yeah, he did pretty well. 160 million and change over a 20-year career. There were decent-sized contracts. Certainly, Boston took care of him a couple of times. He took the smaller deals, and that's what DHs generally are going to do. They're going to take one and two-year deals. There's no risk of injury. A very, you know, very small risk of injury, I should say. So you want to keep yourself in, ter- in terms of a player in control. I mean, if the team decides they want to go in a different favor, you don't want to be stuck in a contract that's not tradable and then be benched, things like that. So for the most part, he took one or two-year deals. There was a four-year, $52 million contract in 2006, which preceded another World Series. So, uh, you know, good chunk of change in the middle of his career. He took very friendly deals. There were $16 million options that kind of got tacked on for his last couple of seasons. Um, You know, very few dings on this resume. Very few. But I, I understand the arguments against... But to me, they completely get demolished when you talk about the arguments for. And this is a worthy situation. Here's the thing. I'm not going to lay out a steroids 
discussion. Everybody and their uh, and their sister is going to be doing that today. I think you know where I stand with it. There are certainly ways to get these guys in and state otherwise. So do it. It's a museum. Educate people. Right? If their baseball says they should be in, put them in. Put them in for baseball purposes, and educate the members of the of the uh, of the baseball world that show up to see these things. With look, this was hanging over his uh, over his career. Whether it's true or not, you know, love it or hate it, it's there. It's part of his career. It's part of the memory of this player. Whether they want it to be there or not, it's there. Educate. That's what a museum's supposed to do. It's supposed to be a a memory of some some specific you know notion, idea, theme, which in this case is baseball. By the way, not major league baseball. Baseball. Keep that in mind. Okay, this isn't the business side of baseball. Nobody cares at the Baseball Hall of Fame that Barry Bonds made $190 million. Nobody cares. Barry Bonds cares. Okay, and that's why he's probably laughing at the bank right now with the fact that he's not in this museum. But they don't care. Cooperstown doesn't care. Cooperstown is memorializing the game. So this is part of the game. I mean, if you want to exclude it, then you're taking 20 to 25 years of the game away from the fans that show up to this museum to learn about it. So that's my take. You know, that's always been my take. There are ways to get these, these players in rightfully so, and also state the obvious and educate fans for generations to come about what happened, what was alleged, what's hanging over their careers. Both things can be the case. Barry Bonds can be in the hall of fame and can also, you know, have the word steroids and Belko attached to his bust. It's, it's perfectly fine. What, if he doesn't agree to it, then he can be he can exclude himself from the Hall of Fame. How, why isn't that the option? Barry, we want to put you in, but, but we got to do it this way. If you agree to it, we'd love to have you. Otherwise, you know, we're, it, things are going to stay the way they are. Why the hell hasn't that conversation come up? Why don't we talk to these players? Okay? They're not admitting anything by doing that. They're saying, look, I understand the allegations are out there. Um, I'm allowing the allegations to be a part of the conversation because because that's just a part of what the generation I played in has. We don't have to accuse anybody anymore. It's done. It's not done, but you know what I mean. <laughs> um, get them in. Veterans Committee, get them in as soon as possible. And let's figure out the right way to do this so that every gosh damn vote, we're not having to deal with this conversation. We, sh- we should be talking about baseball constantly. And oh, by the way, (laughs) if you think the steroid stuff is annoying, Carlos Beltran hits the ballot next year for the first time. So now we have to discuss where sign stealing falls in all of this. And it's coming. And it's going to be a big conversation because there's a lot of people, I think myself included, I haven't really, you know, thrown, thrown back a couple of beers and thought about it lately, but I'm pretty sure I'm in the camp that says that that Astro situation because of the specificity of it, because of the impact that it had on a very specific outcome was worse than steroids. It's worse. It affected an entire team. It infected, it affected game after game after game. Whereas, you know, a lot of things had to go right for Barry Bonds to do what he did. Those couple of seasons where he was just ridiculous. A lot of things had to go right. And oh, by the way, it didn't necessarily translate to, to the San Francisco Giants winning ball games. It aided, it helped, but it didn't translate to it. I have a feeling that quite a lot of what the Astros did at the plate that year had to do with the fact that there was a mechanism in place to understand what pitch was coming. So that's coming <laughs> to a baseball Hall of Fame ballot near you. And that's going to be the, the next big conversation. Before that, I should say, that Veterans Committee, I believe, meets in December. The, the modern day one, the most recent era committee. So there's a there's a chance, an outside chance, I'd say, that some of these guys get in via that committee. If, you know, these are former players, some of these former players are going to say, absolutely not. I didn't cheat, so I'm not putting cheaters in. I get it. Some A lot of these former players have either come around to the notion that we have to preserve that era of the game in its own infancy or... Let's just throw them in and get this conversation off the table, right? Because there's a lot of that too. 
There's a lot of that. And I have to imagine former players have that mindset as well. So December's a big, uh, a big date for this whole process. We'll see what happens with those players specifically, but, um, it's not going away this voting dilemma because the Beltran stuff is only going to be step one. Okay. Let's talk some new England Patriots off season salary cap, free agency trade, Mac Jones, Bill Belichick, deep dive with Matthew Fairburn. All right. Our off season NFL series continues with the new England Patriots. There will be joined by Matthew Fairburn from the athletic Matt. Thanks for joining us. No, thanks so much for having me. So you, uh, you kind of buried the lead in your intro here with me. Former Bills reporter switched over this past season to the Patriots. First of all, how's that been? Yeah, it's been been a bit of a whirlwind. You know, it was uh, just before week one that I made the switch. Um, but I think it was helpful to, you know, stick in the division. And, you know, those Bills-Patriots matchups were some of the more compelling ones, I think, uh, you know, for each team this season and really across the league, they were, they were pretty interesting. So to have knowledge of both sides and a familiarity of the division uh, was definitely helpful, but yeah, it was a, a bit of a whirlwind season for sure. Yeah. A little bit of a role reversal too. And certainly you jumped into a Patriots team that just went bonanza in terms of free agent spending and acquisitions across the board. So I guess we have to start there. Um, yeah, let's start backwards. What is the identity of this team? Are they was this a successful season, all things considered, or do you think maybe where they got to this year is not attainable over the next couple of seasons because of the, the roster we're going to talk about here in the next couple of minutes? Yeah, it is definitely an interesting group for sure because you know, as we were talking just before we started recording, you know. It, I hadn't, you know, when I switched over, you know, you think of all the spending they did and the roster as it's in place. And, you know, as we got towards the end of the season and started looking toward the future, you start digging into the salary cap and the situation that they're in, in 2022 and beyond. And you realize they've got some messy decisions to figure out, you know, that because of all the spending that they had last season, uh, their flexibility in 2022 and beyond is definitely limited. I would say, the way they played in 2021, it, it was a successful season. I know it's it's hard for people in New England to view it that way because I think in part because of all the success they've had in prior years. But to go 10 and seven with a rookie quarterback, uh, lose in the first round, I, I don't think that's a failure. I, I think your ceiling is capped with a rookie quarterback in general, and. I think they got some good returns on their investment. It was a mixed bag on the, you know, on the free agents that they brought in, but Matthew Judon was an impact player for most of the season. He kind of disappeared uh, in the last month or so. They got quite a bit out of guys like Hunter Henry. Uh, so I think there were, you know, some good signings. There were some not so good signings and that's where some of the tough decisions come in and, you know, some of the, the tricky spots that they're going to find themselves in over the next couple of years because they didn't hit a home run on every signing that they made. No. And I knew, you know, they knew that going into it. And, and for, to, to some degree, it was a bit of throw baloney at a wall and hope that 75% of it sticks. And I do think that's exactly what happened. You're right. Um, you know, a couple of swings and misses here. I don't think the wide receivers were exactly what they were hoping for. And certainly the John o. Smith contract is, you know, a, a bit of a national bust now. A lot of people talking about that, but you're right. There's pieces in place, especially defensively, that they can now build around because th that's where I'm focused with this offseason with the Patriots. You know, they're going to they're probably going to draft a wide receiver. There's going to be some sort of movement on the offensive line. But uh, let's start with the secondary, because I'm not, you know, knowing now this is Josh Allen's division, <laughs> as you very well saw last week. They're going to have to shore up this secondary. and I'm not sure they can afford to keep their best piece right now in J.C. Jackson, even if. We're talking about a franchise tag, Matthew. That's, you know, we're talking close to 18 million on that tag with their cap situation. They're going to have to restructure just to get that in the house. Uh, am I incorrect in that assumption? Or do you think that they're going to make this work? Yeah, that's what, you know, when I looked at the numbers, that's really what they're going to have to do. They're going to have to either release or restructure quite a few players to just to get JC Jackson back. And I'm actually writing about J.C. Jackson this week and kind of digging into his situation. I find it 
it, it's the first decision that they have to make. That's I think right. it's the the what everything else revolves around what happens with JC Jackson because of you know the money that they would have to move around to make him fit. And I find him to be a really interesting player because I don't think he is a clear cut, no brainer lockdown cornerback that you want to build your salary cap around necessarily. But I don't think they're in a position to just let him walk away either. You know, I mean, you mentioned having Josh Allen in the division changes a lot of things. It, it makes it so that you really need as many corners as you can possibly have. And they were shorthanded in that wild card game. And you saw what happened. I mean, in the last two games against the Bills, they couldn't force a punt. And J.C. Jackson has had problems with Stephon Diggs. I, I don't think, you know, they have a, a solution where they can just say, put Jackson on Diggs and figure out the rest because that hasn't really worked. He's Diggs has hit him for big plays really in three of the last four matchups that they've had against each other. So I, I find it to be, you know, all along, I thought the tag made the most sense to continue to figure out what you have. I know he had eight interceptions this year. He was a pro bowler. But six of those interceptions came against the Jets, <laughs> Sam Darnold, and the Jaguars. <laughs> the other two came, again, you know, in blowout wins over the Falcons and the Titans. So in those big moments when they needed him the most, I didn't feel like they got the best version of J.C. Jackson. And maybe that's just who he is. But at the same time, what happens if you let him walk out the door? Jalen Mills becomes your number one cornerback. And some of the players that we saw getting torched by the Bills step into bigger roles. So it's a really tricky situation. I feel like they need to find a way to at least fit the tag in because letting him walk away for nothing seems like it would be a, a bad use of resources after they spent so much time developing him and, and really hit such a home run, you know, with him as an undrafted signing. So it's it's a tricky spot, and it's the one that I think you know will dictate a lot of their other decisions this offseason. So you know, uh, you and I both have been following this Patriots team closely, even you know from the Buffalo side of things for a bunch of years now. So you understand how this team has operated, especially during the Brady era, in terms of finances and GM decisions. You know, the only real splashy contract this regime has ever made is the lockdown corner. Is Stefan Gilmore? It was a top of the market total slam dunk contract. Um, and, and it shocked us when it happened, but it, it, it did work out to some degree for a bunch of years. It, what I'm hearing from you, Matthew, is he's not that kind of player. He is, he has production. So his numbers say he's a $20 million cornerback, but that's not what, how the new England Patriots probably value him. Am I incorrect in thinking that? I don't think he's that player. I, I don't, but you know, it's, it's a tough spot for the Patriots to be in when you then have to replace that player. And so the market says one thing about him. How exactly the Patriots feel about him is, I think, we're going to find out, yeah. right? I mean, that that's, you know, the way free agency and the salary cap works is teams tell you exactly how they feel about players. And, you know, I think there might've been a window at some point to get him on a little bit more of an affordable deal, but with him so close to free agency, it feels like that is not the case. It feels like he would get a good return if he hit the market. So from the guy that I've watched this year and going back to last year, I don't see him in the same mold as Stefan Gilmore. Like I, I covered Stefan Gilmore for a few years in Buffalo and certainly watched him, you know, when, you know, he was in New England. This is not the same player. I think Stephon Gilmore is one of the best cornerbacks of this era. And I don't think Jackson is quite there yet. I think he had some great games this year. And I, I think against a lot of receivers, he's close to that level of player. But against the most important receiver in the division, he's not. And that, I think that's a bit of a problem. And I think that's something that they have to think about when they're throwing the money at him. It's just such a tough spot to be in in the NFL right now where you need as many good corners as you can get and you've got one in your building as we'll you know, certainly get to with the rest of their salary cap situation. Mm -hmm. Even if you let him walk away, how are you replacing him? You know, I think that's a big question they have to ask and that's why you know, the franchise tag is a valuable thing to have in their back pocket, but it's also not free money. It's not cheap. You know, it's still $17 million or eight, mm -hmm. close to 18 probably. And 
it's not just the 18 million. It's what that costs you on your roster elsewhere. So it's a tough call. I don't think I'd, the only way I think a long-term deal makes sense, a big, you know, close to market setting long-term deal is if there's a way to structure it to give you more flexibility in the short term. And if there's a little bit uh, of, you know, an easier cap hit to swallow, but that's going to take some cooperation on Jackson's side too. And he's put up the numbers that he knows will get him paid on the open market. Yeah, that's right. It smells like Byron Jones to me. It smells like a guy who, who is just underneath that ceiling, but the second he hits the open market, somebody's going to overpay because he's in a position of power. He's in the right position where a lot of teams need it. To me, that that sounds like someone New England will will let walk. That's just how I've read this over the years. The franchise tag is certainly a possibility, but man, it's it's a big placeholder. Like like we said off the top here, that means three to four moves have to happen. Restructures, maybe another guy walks in his place just to get that placeholder seventeen and a half in. I think that's too much for them to carry over March. I, I expect him to walk. I really do at this point because you're right. He's not taking a discount. He's going to go and see what, you know, if somebody will pay him 21 million, uh, at least an offer out there. So, all right, moving on. My counter to that in saying that I think he's going to walk and, and New England will, will, will use that dollars elsewhere is I believe they have to keep this offensive line intact and add to it. I think that's the only situation that is a given with a rookie quarterback. And we saw that with Cincinnati. We saw that with, with Kansas City, you know, a year and a half ago now. That, to me, has to be the priority. Do you think that they're they're pleased with how this went? The Isaiah Wynn situation has got to be questionable at this point, but they're not a posi- in a position to let these guys walk, right? You're adding pieces, not subtracting right now with that offensive line. Absolutely. I think Trent Brown might be the most important guy to bring back, sure. too. I mean, the the offensive line got noticeably better once he was healthy and locked into that right tackle spot. And, you know, I think this is a team that they were hesitant to move him around. They liked him at right tackle. They do have some depth. You know, Mike Onwenu wasn't even a regular starter for this team. He was, you know, a sixth offensive lineman. But what they got out of Ted Karras at guard and what they got out of Trent Brown at right tackle, I think those guys should be priorities. And Isaiah Wynn is an interesting situation because he didn't play great. They've obviously got the fifth-year option committed to him. I think he's an interesting trade candidate if, if they could find you know, the right fit because then you can really free up some money. Uh, you know, that's a, a big you know, $10 million number or so that you know, they could free up quite a bit of money if they were able to trade him. But like you said, most teams in the NFL aren't going to be happy to be in a spot where they're taking away from their offensive line. And it feels like the offensive line might have been this team's biggest strength from about, you know, week six or seven on once Trent Brown was good to go. So I feel like Brown is probably the most important piece to bring back. But Karras was was really solid as well. And I know he loves New England loves playing here. And I know, you know, the Patriots love him, uh, you know, great guy in the room and a guy that kind of, you know, having that center flexibility, he's got, you know, the, the communication, you know, really helps uh, along that offensive line. So I do think finding, figuring out what you have in Isaiah Wynn and finding a long-term solution at left tackle uh, would be wise. And the fact that they're locked into him on that fifth year option, you know, limits what they can do, but Certainly they could trade him and, and figure out, you know, another solution there. But that needs to be that needs to continue to be their strength, because if they're going to have, you know, Mac Jones take another step and if they're going to continue to have this running game that has been such a, a focal point and identity for them on offense, it starts up front and it has for years. And I think we saw early in the season when they didn't have Trent Brown, they had a little bit of a covid situation, take some guys out of the lineup. You saw what that did to this offense. It was not a pretty offense to watch early in the season. Some of that was Mac Jones getting, you know, getting things figured out and a lot of new pieces coming together. But I think you can trace a lot of that seven game winning streak and a lot of the success they started to have to the way they played up front. So it really should be the priority for this team. A couple of these older defensive players, are they falling off the roster? Are they coming back on cheap deals and, and making Belichick happy in that regard? And, you know, Devin McCourty, Dante Hightower, who, who definitely struggled down the stretch. Um, are we talking more positions of need at that point come March? 
Yeah, that's that's another spot. You you forget how old some of these guys are. Like Devin McCourty has played so well that it's hard to imagine that he's going to be 35 next season. I, I thought he played well this season. There were times, you know, down the stretch, I think, where you could see that, you know, maybe he he's certainly not the player that he was in his at the peak of his prime, but he is still an impressive player at that age. I think you can get him to come back on a reasonable deal. They they have voidable years in his contract, so those are going to hit them at some point. But I think if he wants to play, playing here makes the most sense. And I think the Patriots like the way he he communicates on the back end, the way he's calling a lot of the shots on defense. That's an important you know piece for them. Same goes for you know the, the way they have those three safeties working is part of what made them such a, a tough defense to play against for a big chunk of the season. It obviously, you know, went a little haywire at the end of the year. I think Hightower is, is interesting because he definitely was playing through a knee injury for a good chunk of the year. So it's hard to know how much of that caught up with him at the end of the year, how much his age caught up with him, but also how much the Patriots might be looking to say, you know, Let's get a little faster at that linebacker spot. I think team speed on defense was a bit of an issue for them in that wild card loss to the Bills. And that goes for Hightower. That goes for Jawan Bentley, who's also a free agent. They don't have speed at those linebacker spots. And that hasn't been the calling card of, of Bill Belichick's defense. Hightower, you know, is probably less of a lock to, you know, or, you know, less likely to come back, I think, than McCordy. But that's where we start to, you know, you get into a lot of the questions about this Patriots team going forward is, you know, they have these last few pieces from sort of the second or maybe you'd even call it the third wave of the dynasty, right? These guys that have been these, you know, they've been around for a good amount of this team's success and they're getting pretty close to the point where they won't have very many of those guys left. And those are two of the last ones. Matthew Slater is another one, uh, you know, that's a, a free agent and, you know, he'll be, he's 36 now. So, I mean, these guys are, are getting up there and some tough decisions need to be made. I, I think McCordy is still playing at a level that's worth bringing back high tower. You know, they know more uh, than anybody about, you know, the injury situation and how much that impacted him, but it did feel like, he lost a step toward the end of the year. Yeah, and bringing McCourty back on a near-minimum contract actually reduces the cap because of those void years. You want to keep those spread out as much as possible for cap purposes. So there's actually some business to bringing him back as well that's going to go in their favor. I agree with Hightower. The off-ball linebacker is replaceable, uh, especially somebody over 30. You're finding those guys on, on the free agent market with with uh, a decent amount of, of depth. And, you know, that's a mid-to-mid-to-fourth-round draft pick now for a lot of these teams. So... Uh, the ability to get that player replaced has become easier and easier over the years. Uh, you know, and to some degree, the wide receiver position has been that as well. It's, it's another good free agent class. It's a very good draft class. They did add a couple of pieces last offseason in Aguilar and Bourne, uh, the latter of which I think worked out very well for his for what his contract is in the next two seasons. Jacoby Myers is a restricted free agent, probably coming back on a second round tender. Outside of that, is this a draft need? Is this a high draft need? Are they going to look for a playmaker for Mac Jones, similar to what the Bengals just did with Jamar Chase? I do think it's a high draft need, probably the number one need, uh, you know, as far as the draft goes. And, you know, they, over the years, you know, didn't take a lot of swings in the first round at wide receivers, but it's looking like the most recent one, Nikhil Harry, <laughs> is, was a, a, a big miss. Um, you know, I think, it's pretty obvious that he hasn't worked out. He's been a pretty good run blocker and that's about all you can say about him. And he, he just, you know, doesn't have that playmaking ability that you want in terms of getting separation quickly. It's just a weird fit with Mac Jones. I feel like and the way they play offense, you want a guy that can get open quickly, create separation and, you know, make plays after the catch. And that's just not Harry. So yeah, I like, you know, Bourne as a player, especially on his contract, I think is a really nice player. You can make an argument that they should get him more involved mm -hmm. and feature him a bit more uh, to get even more return on that investment. Aguilar is a tough one. You know, I mean, that, that's a contract that certainly didn't work out uh, to this point. 
But I also thought there were times, you know, where Aguilar was one that would take time to return because, you know, Mac Jones as a rookie wasn't attacking the deep part of the field early on. And he started to do so more as the season went. And Aguilar does most of his damage there. And so I think that was one that was going to take time to be a real fit. And he did have value as a guy that could stretch the field and open up space for everybody else. But when you're talking about, uh, you know, $14 million cap hit, you know, you want to do more than just take up space, you know, and open up space. You want to have a guy that's getting you production and they can't really get out of that deal unless they trade him. Maybe they find somebody that, you know, has a ton of cap room and wants to throw a late round pick at you to, to take him off your hands. That would be nice. That would be a, a way to open up some money for a guy that, that really didn't, you know, bring a whole lot of production to the table. But even if they bring the band back as it's constructed, they need somebody with a bit more juice. And you saw, you look at all the teams that are left, you know, they have those players that are making plays for their young quarterbacks. And, you know, that's, something that Mac Jones lacks. And it's something that I would have at the very top of the list, either, you know, you don't want to force it, uh, you know, in the first round, you want to get a good player, but somewhere in the first, you know, two days of the draft, I think they need to find somebody that, that Mac Jones can lean on. And we've seen these guys come into the league and be those players right away. You know, it's not, and I, and I know it's tougher in the Patriots offense. It's a tough offense to learn, but, you can find a guy that can come in and make an impact in year one. And I, I think that's, you know, absolutely essential for them to do this off season. No question. I'm with you on that one. In terms of Aguilar, they're going to try to trade him, And when they can't, they're going to go to him and say, look, only 5 million is guaranteed on this, on the rest of this contract. We're going to take the rest of it and convert it to incentives that you're probably not going to hit and you're going to have to live with it or you're going to, or you're going to walk. So I, I do think that, that will be a point of contention, but they do have a little bit of leverage with that because he just didn't, there's not enough bang for buck there in terms of what he did last season. And they're going to bring in a true number one wide receiver in this draft. I agree with you in that regard. Anyone else kind of standing out in this roster for you? Or, or do you think that it's going to be less turnover than maybe some of us think it might be? Because we look at the cap space, we look at, you know, we've talked about some of these defensive players who may price themselves off this roster, but I look at some of the depth and I'm sure you have too. And I feel like these guys didn't even start playing yet. <laughs> like the defensive line, uh, there might be two absolute monsters that really didn't even show their face in 2021. Um, and who knows if John o. Smith can find some sea legs with this team, if that can become a two headed monster once again in the tight end position. I, I think there's actually a higher ceiling with some of these options than there is the need to really turn things over. Yeah, I think so, especially because of, you know, the financial reality of some of the situations, right? Like, you know, Jonu Smith, you can't really get out of that deal. No, so no. you have to sit down and say, how do we get more out of this guy? And, not, you know, they were pretty reluctant to, you know, force the situation this season and, and find a way to say, look, we got to get this guy involved because we paid him X number of dollars. They seemed to lose some trust in him after that Saints game when he had you know, a bad drop that ended up in a pick six and they weren't for forcing the issue. But when you have a full off season and you're able to come up with some ways to make it work, they didn't run a lot of 12 personnel this year after, you know, the first week or two of the season, they, they really cut down on it dramatically and finding a way to make him more of an impact player. That, that's like, you know, finding some money under, under the couch cushions because it's like, you're already paying him. And if he can actually be the player that you're paying, that would be as good as adding, you know, so that's important. And yeah, they they have a lot of these glue guys on the back of their roster that I think are important to, to retain. You mentioned Jacoby Myers, Matthew Slater's another one, uh, Brandon Bolden and, and, you know, figuring out what to do with James White, uh, you know, whether they bring him back. So they do have some guys that I think I understand the, you know, the reaction immediately from some people when you see them get blown out by the bills is that they need to blow things up. But you also have to remember they don't have a ton of flexibility to add this off season other than through the draft. I mean, it's, it's kind of one of those years where you say, man, they really have to draft and develop and hit on some of these guys. Some of the players that, you know, like you mentioned that they have guys that didn't play a whole lot that they need to get some development from and 
or guys that didn't play well enough that they need to get better. But it's going to be one of those years where they need to they need to draft well and they need to develop the players that they've already drafted well and find some better fits and hope that internal development creates a lot of this because they're not going to be able to spend like they did last season and they only have you know so many draft picks and that's kind of a, a boring you know way to to look at it but that's the reality of their situation unless they make some some drastic moves and like you said with guys like Aguilar and and whoever else that they may try to trade you need a partner right you need somebody to take on those uh you know those contracts and give you something in return so uh, I think it's, you know, they knew what they were getting into, right? When they spent all that money, they they had a plan. And, you know, they knew, like you said, you're not going to hit on 100% of the free agents that you throw money at. And now it's about, you know, maximizing this window with Mac Jones and knowing that, you know, the bills aren't going anywhere. You know, they, they're, they're going to have to make some subtractions and figure some things out with the cap, but they've still got that behemoth of a quarterback that's, you know, going to be staring down at you at least two times a year. So it's going to be an interesting off season in New England, but not necessarily a splashy one, I think, because of, you know, what, the, you know, the way that they're kind of, you know, tied up in some of these players. And so, you know, they have to remember, Bill Belichick mentioned this right after the season, you don't just evaluate the playoff game and what went wrong there. You don't just evaluate what went wrong in the final five weeks of the season, that's part of your evaluation, but it's also what went right to get you to 10 and seven. And how do you bottle that up a little bit more and get some development, hopefully, you know, get your quarterback to take another step. And, you know, that makes a lot of things easier. So uh, some interesting decisions, but, but probably not a complete overhaul and blow up uh, the way some fans probably wanted when they were watching that wild card game. Right, exactly. And, and I'll get you out of here on this, and I think I know the answer to it, but I, I want to put it out there anyway. It seems like when Belichick knows that there's something brewing with one of his rosters, and you know that's been pretty consistent <laughs> over the past 20 years, but he, he certainly has an inkling when he's got a one-up on most of the divisions, some of the AFC, and he can get maybe one or two splash players that really puts him over the edge. This this roster does appear close, and you know maybe that splash comes in that in that young weapon in the draft and has immediate impact, like we've seen a couple of teams really benefit from. But they've also not been afraid to throw a high draft pick into a trade and get a proven veteran player at times. Maybe every three four years, the Patriots are kind of suspect to doing this. Is this not the year for that, Matthew? Because you're going to hear and. and Trust me, I'm sure you already have in your neck of the woods. You're going to hear the Christian McCaffreys, the Amari Coopers, the Michael Thomases. You know, there's going to be a lot of sort of disgruntled veterans on bad teams, even Brandon Cooks again in Houston, that that are going to want to force their way into a better situation. This doesn't seem like the right year for that, but I'm not certainly not in Belichick's head right now. Yeah, it's that's a tough place to get to uh, in <laughs> Belichick's head. Um, I. I don't rule out anything. And the reason I don't is just because I, I don't know. I, one of the things I wondered about when I got here is, you know, how much longer Bill Belichick will do this. And it feels like he'll do it for a while because he still loves it. And uh, you know, he still seems to have a ton of energy for the job. And um, you know, most people, you know, that I talk to don't seem to think it's much of a question in the next few years. So but you still do wonder, right, about the patience factor, uh, you know, and wanting to say, if this guy's available, let's go get him and and let's go, you know, make that. I mean, you saw it last offseason, right? They weren't they threw all that money because they were ready to compete again. They were ready to get back to the playoffs and, and you get this roster where it needs to be. They don't have as much, you know, cap room and as healthy a cap situation to make that happen. But they might have the urgency. Uh, so. I think there's certain appeal to drafting that type of player and getting that impact right away in the draft. And it feels like more and more teams are doing that. Uh, so it doesn't feel like they're in a spot to make that type of move. But like you said, I mean, whether it was the big Stefan Gilmore signing or the big off season spending last year or the trades that they've made over the years, they find a way to get guys in the door. I also, the other element of this that I wonder about is, you know, how much they're able to be that place for players again, mm. because 
Tom Brady was a big part of that, frankly. You know, if you had a, a disgruntled wide receiver, you could get him to New England and who isn't happy playing with Tom Brady. It's a little bit different. Bill Belichick is still, I think, a recruiting tool. You know, a lot of people don't think that, but I think last offseason and the way a lot of these players uh, enjoyed playing for Coach Belichick shows that, you know, that's something that, you know, is still appealing to people. But Tom Brady was a big part of that, too. And so that's a, an element here that I wonder about. You know, maybe you get a receiver in the draft that can grow with Mac Jones rather than, you know, plucking a veteran. But there might be some some names floated, right? There might be some guys out there that get moved around. Calvin Ridley is potentially another one. So I don't know. I wonder about it because, you know, we've seen Bill Belichick kind of, you know, show that he doesn't like uh, sitting around and not being competitive. You know, that's not really uh, something that he or Robert Kraft uh, have a lot of patience for. So maybe they, they find a way to make it work, but it would take a little bit of juggling, I think. He's at Matthew Fairburn on Twitter. You can find him at The Athletic covering the Patriots all year long. Matthew, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. No, thanks so much for having me. Enjoy the offseason. All right, my thanks to Matthew and his employer, The Athletic. Visit theathletic.com slash Spotrek. Get yourself 40% off your first year subscription today. For Scott Allen, my name is Mike Janetti. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Spotrek Podcast.